Today on Let the Bible Speak. What does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and our king? That's next. And welcome to the program. It's good to be with you today to start another week together in study and contemplation of the Word of God. When we refer to Jesus as Christ, we're not using a surname, but rather we're attaching a title to His name. Had you met Jesus somewhere along the way during His ministry 2,000 years ago, it's very doubtful that He would have introduced Himself to you as Jesus Christ, but more likely Jesus of Nazareth. He might have referred to Himself as Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. But that word Christ had very special significance to the Jews, and they immediately made associations in their mind when they heard it. For it spoke of three offices or works that were central to their national life and their religion. That of a prophet, a priest, and the title of king. The word Christ means the anointed one. And as we shall see in our lesson today, it referred to one who would be set forth by God to be the rightful possessor of these positions. Stay with us, for that will be the subject of our lesson today, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, after a song. Christians have long referred to Jesus in sermon and song as prophet, priest, and king. But this is much more than poetic prose or soaring sermonic rhetoric. It refers to three distinct offices central to the Jewish religion and consequently essential to God's entire system. 
These three offices point to the primary title Jesus wears, which is that of the Christ, or the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word, and Christ is the equivalent Greek word, expressing the same thing. Both words mean anointed, or chosen one, and they refer to one chosen by God and divinely set forth to fulfill a certain office. Now, under the Old Covenant, men were selected by God and anointed to fill one of these three important roles. There were prophets, through whom God spoke to His people. There were priests, who mediated between the people and God. And then there were kings, who were anointed to rule over them. When one was chosen to serve in a respective office, one acting by God's authority, such as Samuel, for example, would go to that person, as he did in the case of Saul and later David. He would go to that person whom God chose, and he would take a horn of holy oil, and he would anoint them with that oil. And this was God's way of designating that individual as his selection to that office and appointing them to serve. So we might say that prophets, priests, and kings throughout the Old Testament were anointed ones. That is, they were chosen by God to fill those important offices, but they were not the anointed one. Their service in those offices were ultimately temporary prophetic pictures of Jesus who would one day come and fulfill all three roles at the same time. Now usually these three offices were distinct and occupied by different people. In other words, a prophet was not usually a priest, a priest was not typically a king, a king was not a prophet, and so forth. Jesus, however, is all three at the same time. He is the perfect prophet, he is the perfect and sinless priest, and he is the perfect and absolutely sovereign king. Now, Jesus did not come and assume these offices himself. He came with the Father's sanction. He came with the Father's anointing. And God set him forth before first his people, the Jews, and ultimately the whole world to be the rightful occupant of these three divine appointments. Now, whereas a man under the Old Testament would have his head symbolically anointed with oil, well, this too foreshadowed the anointing of Jesus, not with literal oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And this is where the title of Christ is connected with Jesus. Had you met, as I told you in the beginning of the broadcast today, had you met the Lord Jesus during the first 30 years of his life, he would not have introduced himself to you as Jesus Christ, because for one thing, Christ is not his name, it's a title or it's a description. But also, because for the majority of his earthly life, he was not identified, he was not set forth before the world as the Christ, but simply would have been known as Jesus of Nazareth. He lived an ordinary, though pure and sinless, he lived an ordinary everyday life. He had a childhood, he grew into a man, he worked with his hands as a carpenter, he had neighbors, we would assume friends and associates along life's way. But one day, during the ministry of his cousin John the Baptist, the world's perception of him began to change. As John was preaching the imminent arrival of the Messiah and his kingdom rule, he was baptizing in the river Jordan at Bethabara. And Jesus went to John this day and requested baptism by him. Jesus had no sins to repent of or to remit, but he still complied with this command of God, insisting that it fulfilled righteousness. It was a command of God, so it was the right thing to be done. And thus he set an example of obedience and compliance for others to follow. But more than that, he connected, he built a bridge between the message of John to his own message in ministry. And it was at this moment that God anointed him before the people. 
The record tells us in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, that Jesus, when he was baptized, that he went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now God's pronouncement meant much more than to merely commend what Jesus had just done. He, by sending the Spirit down upon him, was doing what those men of old had done with that oil all down through the centuries every time a priest or a new king or a prophet was chosen and designated before the people. God was anointing Jesus. That is, God was setting him forth as prophet, priest, and king. Now, as I said, all three of those divine offices were to now find their fulfillment and their culmination in Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. And this is the very moment where Jesus left the carpenter shop and he began his ministry leading up to his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. Now let's consider for a few moments these three offices that Jesus has fulfilled and occupies today. Because only when we understand these three offices, their nature, their scope, what they truly mean, will we begin to appreciate what the Bible means when it calls Jesus the Christ of God and to acknowledge Him as our prophet, priest, and king. First of all, Jesus is our anointed prophet. Now, prophet is one who speaks the word of God. Referring to the prophets under the Old Testament, Peter told us in 2 Peter 1 verse 21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God. That is, the prophets, they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, God expressed Himself to mankind through the words and works of the Old Testament prophets. He spoke through them. The prophets preached, they upbraided the people in their sins, and they called the people to repentance and a renewed relationship with God. They prophesied the future, including not only God's promises of hope, but His sure threats of judgment to come. And they manifested God's power by sometimes performing miracles. That was the, that was the work of a prophet. Well, Jesus perfectly fulfills this divine office. In fact, the writer of Hebrews shows us that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic office in the beginning of his letter. In Hebrews 1, beginning of verse 1, he says, God, who at sundry or various times and in diverse or in different ways, he spake in time past, that is, throughout the Old Testament, unto the fathers by the prophets. But he hath in these last days, that means this New Testament dispensation, he has spoken unto us, by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now Jesus not only serves as God's ultimate prophet by the things he has spoken, but in fact by his very person. Not only his words, but his very being is the expression of God to man. The beautiful prologue to John's Gospel says in John 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verses 17 and 18, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now it's not that God did not speak through Moses, and it's not that Christ doesn't have a law. But what he's saying is that Christ is the full and final revelation of God to man. No man has seen God at any time, he says. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared 
Him. It's only in Jesus that we get the full revelation of God to mankind. Jesus is God. He's not the Father, but He is God the Son. And He, by His becoming human, manifested the unseen God to us. And He is the ultimate revelation of God. And thus He is the supreme lawgiver. Now the greatest human prophet, Moses himself, prophesied of Christ in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, saying that the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. In other words, you will listen and you will obey him. Now Peter, as well as Stephen, made it clear in their preaching in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7 that Moses there was speaking of Jesus. But of course, remember what the religious leaders of the first century did with this prophet God sent forth. The same thing they did to the other prophets God had sent throughout time, and the same thing that many people do with this prophet of God today. Stephen said in verses 51 through 53 of his sermon in Acts 7, and this is what cost him his life. He said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them? which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. They rejected God because they rejected the prophets God sent. And worst of all, they rejected the prophet God sent, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. And that sealed their doom. Now, friend, to reject the teachings and the commands of Jesus is to reject Jesus. You cannot accept Jesus and then turn around and deny or reject His Word. And if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. If you resist the words of Jesus, you're resisting the Word of God. And thus you're rebelling against the authority of God Himself. You cannot be in a right relationship with God and refuse to listen to His Son Jesus Christ and obey Him. You cannot claim that Jesus is the Christ of God, the anointed one of God, and then turn around and deny or ignore His words and His commandments because to say that He is the Christ means you acknowledge Him as God's prophet, that God has spoken through Him, and we are to listen to Him. You cannot set His ways aside and still rightly call Him the Christ. But then to say Jesus is the Christ is also to say that He is our priest. Now, the Old Testament priests were men chosen to be mediators between sinful humans and holy God. Because of man's sinful condition, we cannot just saunter into the presence of God and appear before Him. His holiness will not allow that. So God provided graciously a system to allow man access to His throne, and that is through a representative, through a priesthood. Now, under the Old Covenant, God manifested His presence with the nation of Israel through the tabernacle and later the temple, and its surrounding sacrifices and forms of worship. And he chose the men of the tribe of Levi to serve as priests for the people. And it was the job of these priests to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation, whereby God could be appeased and His righteousness satisfied. Now these priests were appointed, or anointed I should say, to their office, and that meant that the people were to look to them as their mediators or their means of representation before God. It was through these anointed priests that they had right of access to the Father. Now, in particular, God appointed a high priest whose duty and privilege it was every year on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16, to enter into the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence, the Shekinah glory, dwelt and to approach God at the mercy seat, which sat above the Ark of the Covenant, wherein was the law 
and to offer the blood of sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. That's where God met the people. That was God's temporary means of dealing with sin. Temporary because such blood did not possess the inherent value to atone for the sins of man, but it merely satisfied God's demands for the time and it pointed forward to the means that God ultimately would give, and that is His Son, Christ Jesus, as a sacrifice upon Calvary, and His blood would have the value to take away the sins of the whole world, past and present, that is, and future. The blood of the sins of the Israelites under the old law, the sins of people today under the new covenant. Now the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, it makes this connection for us, saying, Seeing that we then have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. In other words, as that high priest under the law went in through the veil into that holy of holies once a year, Jesus has gone into the holy of holies where God dwells today, and that is in heaven. And he has offered his blood before God as an atonement for sin. And he says, therefore, let us hold fast our profession. So Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, though, that is, those sacrifices back there were just a picture. He said they could never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. But down in verse 12 he says, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And then listen to verses 21 through 23. And having an high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How do we do that? Through the right of access provided by Jesus, our great high priest. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that refers to the application of the blood of Jesus to our sin-stained souls, and our bodies washed with pure water, referring to the washing away of the filth of sin in baptism, just like that priest had to wash in the laver before entering into God's presence. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Oh, what a beautiful picture. And friend, what that picture tells us is there is absolutely no access to God but through the work of Jesus the Christ, our great high priest. You cannot come to God on the basis of your good character because your character will never be good enough. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You cannot come to God on the basis of some noble philosophy or on the basis of good intentions or good deeds. Your deeds aren't good enough. You cannot come to God through Muhammad or Buddha or any other person Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, verse 6. He is our great high priest, and he is therefore our only right of access to the throne of a holy and just God. And that's why we say so emphatically that Jesus is the only way to God, and you can only be saved through faith in him. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, Jesus was anointed as our king. I told you that usually one man only held one office. One exception to that was a man who lived in the days of Abraham. His name was Melchizedek. The Bible tells us in Genesis that he was the king of Salem and that he was also a priest. He uniquely filled both offices at the same time. And that mysterious reference in Genesis is there for a reason, because he prefigured or he represented Christ. And one of the ways in which he did so is that he served in both offices at the same time. 
And Hebrews chapter 7 clearly draws this parallel and shows the fulfillment. Now, the office of king sets forth Christ's sovereignty and His power and His authority over us. God's physical nation under the Old Testament was ruled by a succession of kings down through the years. And actually, God didn't intend for that to be the case. God never wanted Israel to have a human king. He never wanted mankind to have human kings. Rather, God was to be recognized as our only ruler, and Israel's only ruler, according to 1 Samuel 8 and verse 7. You see, God did not design man to be ruled over by other men. That order is the result of sin and man's rebellion. That, that order came later. Eventually, Israel wasn't satisfied to have God as their king. And they wanted a human king so they could be like the pagan nations around them that looked to man for their rule. Well, God let them have a king, not because that was his desire, but so that they would reap the consequences of their rebellious wish. And like God has always done, he worked through this arrangement to foreshadow his son and through his son place himself back upon the throne. God used the throne of Israel, in other words, to symbolize the reign of His Son, Jesus the Christ, His anointed one, in the hearts of His people. Jesus was the rightful heir of the throne, and God set Him upon that throne at His right hand, and God rules through Him. Thus, when Jesus completed His work on earth and prepared to ascend back to heaven, He told His apostles, All power or authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. Matthew 28 and verse 18. And he then ascended to his father, and Peter boldly preached then on the day of Pentecost that the Jesus they had crucified had not ascended today, had not had ascended, I should say, to David's throne, and that he was to be recognized and submitted to as their king, God's anointed. And that's the message of the book of Acts. That's the message of the gospel. Friend, this is what Peter meant when he said in Acts 2 verse 36, that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, anointed one. God has given to him rule over his kingdom, and he will rule until he has put all enemies under his feet, including death in the resurrection at the end of time, and he will then deliver his kingdom up to God, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. Now, my friend, do you understand now the importance of what is called the good confession? Does that help us to understand the eternal significance of confessing with our mouths Jesus as the Christ? That's not a formality. That's not just merely a verbal formula. We are told that we must confess Him before men to be saved. Why? Because of what we acknowledge when we make that confession. Peter made that confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Ethiopian nobleman made that confession before he waded down into the waters of baptism. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those aren't just words. That isn't just an acknowledgement of some vague faith in Jesus. It is a statement of absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ. When you stand before God and before men and you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you are saying, I believe that Jesus is God's anointed one. I believe and I recognize Jesus as my prophet, and I will listen to him and receive his words in faith and obedience. I claim Jesus as my great high priest, and I confess that there is no other way to be forgiven of my sins and to be reconciled to God but through him. 
and I bow before Jesus as my Lord and my King, and I will surrender my will and my heart and my life, my body, my possessions, my past, my present, my future to Him, and I will acknowledge Him as my only true King, and I will be loyal to Him, will serve Him, and I will obey Him. Is that what Jesus means to you? Have you made that good confession and been united with Him in baptism? If not, won't you come to Jesus today and recognize Him as your prophet, your priest, and your king? Reading how I love to proclaim it, reading by the blood of the Lamb, reading the risen blood of mercy, His child forever I am. Reading, 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 reading by the Friend, if you have not yet confessed Jesus as the Christ of God, I hope you understand the importance of doing so and what all is involved in refusing to make that confession. If you do not confess Him as the Christ, you're saying that He's not God's prophet. You're saying that He's not God's priest, that there is another way to God. You're saying that you bow and surrender your life to another king besides Jesus. I hope today that you will surrender your allegiance to Him because He is God's anointed one. God has set him forth to be prophet, priest, and king. And maybe you've made that confession, but you're not living your life for him. You're not being obedient to him. You control your own life instead of bowing before him and allowing his word to guide your footsteps and to dictate the way you live your life. If that be the case, any confession that you make of him as Christ is empty and it is vain. You must make that confession from the heart, not only with the lips. And today, if you have not confessed Him as Christ and been immersed into a relationship with Him, then we beg and, impl and implore you to do so today. If you believe that He is who He claims to be or ready to turn from your sins in repentance, to confess Him as the Christ of God and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins, it would be our delight to help you do so. If you'd like a free printed copy of our lesson today, be glad to send it to you free of charge again. Just ask for the lesson, Prophet, Priest, and King, and we'll get it to you as soon as we can. Also, remember you can get in touch with us online, ltbstv.org, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Let the Bible Speak. Just search for Let the Bible Speak TV. It's my delight to be with you today. I hope you have a great week ahead and that you'll plan, if God is willing, to join me back here for another Bible study next time. Until then, have a great week and God bless you. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org.
Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.